Welcome back to the Girls to the Front podcast. I'm your host, Harriet J.W. And today we are talking about a hot topic and something that I think will resonate with many of you out there. And that is how to build a loyal fan base. My guest is Michael Walker, who not only built a fan base of tens of millions of streams as an independent artist with his band Paradise Fears, but now teaches artists to do the same and has grown a seven-figure company doing so. But before we get into the show, I want to remind you about a little something I've been working on. In just a few days, I will be opening the doors to my Artist Academy Foundation course, a development programme for women and non-binary artists looking to build their audience and their income from their music. You can register your interest and hear a little bit more at www.artistacademyfoundation.com. Michael Walker, I am super excited to have you on the Girls to the Front podcast because I've admired your work for a long time, both as a musician and as a businessman. So tell us, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, th- thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to be here too and to, to talk more. And um, so we actually are recording this. Literally, I just recorded Harriet yesterday and now she's, <laughs> she's interviewing me. So it's kind of a nice uh, flip around. So I, out of high school, um, I started touring with my band full time. Uh, basically, the decision was, do I want to go to medical school and become a dentist or do I want to tour full time with my band? And I took the, the safe option and decided to tour full time with my band. But, you know, pretty early on, we were basically the definition of starving, starving artists. You know, we, like, we lived in our van, we slept in Walmart parking lots and ate peanut butter tortillas for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And, you know, we worked our butts off and we were all constantly reaching out to people on, at the time, it was like MySpace and, and Facebook and reaching out and building connections and booking shows and uh, realized pretty quickly that it's not enough to just book shows, but you actually need to figure out how to get people to come out to the shows. And at the time we were playing for like the bartender in the back of the room and we would, you know, lug our gear up three flights of stairs and play for hardly anyone. And, and, um, you know, I I think the thing that was the biggest breakthrough for us was early on our lead singer had an idea that now, now we've come to call tour hacking. And essentially the idea was there were six of us in the band. And so we split up into groups of two and we followed other bands' tours around the country. And before their shows, you know, a lot of them would have lines that were waiting for a day or two in advance to go into the show. Sometimes thousands of people, um, you know, camped out waiting in line. And so we would approach those people and introduce ourselves and add some clips of our songs that would share on headphones and ask if they wanted to, to listen to the music. And yeah, I was like a super shy, awkward kid. So that, that didn't come naturally to me at all. I was like shaking and stuttering as I walked up to people. But um, what we found is just that it worked really, really well. I think because the people that we were connecting with were really like the types of music supporters and music fans who actually go out to shows and spend money at shows and care about music. And they're just the right people to be talking to. And so we sold 24,000 CDs in about six months doing that. And because of that, one of the bands that we were tour hacking on uh, was called All Time Low. And they were like our favorite band of all time at all time, all time low. And yeah, they had toured as like Blink-182 and they had millions of fans and they heard about what we were doing and they gave us the opportunity to open for them on their next uh, tour. And so, yeah, I, I remember 
literally jumping up and down like uh for enjoy <laughs> and if anyone has like had a, a video on us at the point where we first learned that it would probably be kind of embarrassing to see us we were just like you know fanboying but um it was a really incredible opportunity and we got to connect with with those guys and with a lot of our favorite bands um growing up we, we went on tour with them and eventually grew to a point where independently without being signed to a record label, we released an album that hit number two on iTunes. Uh, we had about 24 million streams and we toured worldwide. And a few years ago, when I found out I was gonna be a dad, I'd been touring full-time with my band. I was gone most of the year and I was really kind of looking at what comes next. I, I didn't wanna be gone for my family. And yeah, I had never gone to college. I just started touring with my band. <laughs> And so I didn't really have any credentials or anything like to get, quote unquote, get a real job. And probably one of the most difficult or challenging points in my life was feeling like, like a failure of a husband and a father because I didn't know what I was going to do and, and I didn't know how to provide for them you know, without touring full time, being, without being gone. And luckily stumbled upon some mentors in the online business space who taught me how to build an online education platform and to be able to coach and help other artists who are earlier on who are just getting started with their music careers to be able to tour successfully and to be able to grow an audience of people who actually care about their music and how to monetize it and have a full-time career as a musician. Um, certainly in the last few years as well, I've learned a lot when it comes to some of the online, the digital marketing um, opportunities that are available with Facebook and Instagram advertising, with building funnels and paid traffic, which are things that didn't really exist as much when Paradise Fears was first getting started. So essentially now with Modern Musician, uh, we've built the business in the past two and a half years. It's grown to a, a seven figure a year business with about 21 coaches on the team who are helping artists to build successful music careers. And there's two different aspects, I feel like, in, in terms of modern musician, there's this aspect of like grassroots, rooted, personal connection. It's about one-to-one. -one. It's about really connecting. And that's what you know, music does, right? It's like it brings us together. It helps us connect on a deeper level. And then there's also this aspect of technology in the future and cybernetics and automation and being able to use these tools to essentially be able to almost like clone ourselves. Um, what we teach now is like 95% of what we teach is this thing called virtual tour hacking, which is essentially the same thing as tour hacking, but instead of going to lines and meeting people in person, we do it virtually through Facebook and Instagram ads. And then we have conversations and they have like a AI chat bot that literally has these conversations with new fans and invites them into their community. And so it's like, if we could create robots that basically walked up to people in lines for shows and like had these conversations. And so does that answer your question? I feel like totally. I just- Totally. And I've got, I've got so many questions stacking up to, to come back to you on. And I think I'll start going back to the musician piece because obviously this is where it all began for you. So you, if I'm right, you literally grew a fan base person by person in the beginning, going up to people with a set of headphones and saying, you might like this because you're in this queue for this similar band. And you just got to meet people that way, building one by one by one. Like that's a really interesting concept. And I think it aligns very nicely with the, the kind of 10,000 hour rule of having to work your craft for 10,000 hours. Did it feel that long like did it feel like you dedicated years of your life to doing this oh yeah i mean like it it certainly it was we did we did we dedicated like 10 years of our lives to doing that so it, so it was a lot that we put into it but at the same time it was like 
I don't know. It's like, it's a lot of energy. It's a challenge, but it's the kind of challenge where if it's something you're passionate about, then it doesn't necessarily feel like work. It just is something that you're excited about to, to push. But um, it certainly was a lot of like so much, almost like quote unquote, like hustling or so much, you know, uh, putting so much love and energy into it, that I think was a big part of it. And like what you're saying, like, I think the I think the thing that's missing for a lot of new artists who maybe we're just starting out or at a point where maybe they have some friends and family who are like listening to it, but they haven't really started to build a community or like a tribe around their music yet is they're missing the connection or they're missing the relationships that that are formed with those that initial group of fans who they actually have need to connect with personally and i think that there's a sort of validation or there's a connection there's something that happens there where for a lot of artists who are starting out there's this nagging feeling kind of under the surface of am i really good enough um is my music really good enough can i really can I really do this? And they have this suspicion or this fear that maybe they're not good enough. And, you know, their friends and their family kind of have to support them because of their friends and their family, but they might not really be like, like true fans of the music. They're just kind of doing it because they're friends and family. I think for us, like to, to be totally honest with you, our first album, our first EP that we released was not very good. <laughs> you know, like, I, like looking back, we actually took it offline because relatively compared to the newer things, the quality is just not even close. But even with that, that first album, we got our first thousand true fans because we were actually putting in the time to really connect with people. And, you know, when you find the right people that resonate with, with your music, it's, you don't necessarily have to have like the most uh, polished produced, you know, version of your music yet. Like, I think that sometimes people want to skip, they want to skip the part at the very beginning where you have to kind of you have to kind of suck a little bit until like you, you don't suck anymore. Like, you know, you have to kind of go through that phase where you do what you can with what you have. And starting out, I mean, no one just kind of picks up a guitar and they just play a song brilliantly the first time. It's like, you have to kind of go through that phase of learning and trying and experimenting and not sounding great until you get to a point where you really kind of dial it in. The analogy that, that I use for that is it's about like getting in tune. It's kind of about tuning up your guitar. So I think having those conversations early on, whether it's in person or even just virtually like having messenger conversations with new fans and sharing your music and really having that is that if you're a good listener and you're asking good questions, then you're kind of, you're getting feedback, you're getting feedback. And based on that feedback, you can you can tune up your messaging. You can kind of figure out, okay, so I guess when I yell from the rooftops, everyone go stream my music, no one really streams it. But I guess when I actually care about them and I ask good questions and I focus more on building a relationship that people tend to care more about the music. So yeah, I think that that feedback is really, really important early on. And sometimes that's a step that people want to skip because they almost feel a little bit embarrassed that they're like, they want to pretend like they're, they're above that stage. Yeah. It's a lot of broadcasting, isn't it? And and that was a really good analogy. Like when I go and stand on the rooftops and shout stream my music, no one listens. But if I actually get in to a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you know, it obviously takes a lot of time and it takes guts. You have to get out of your comfort zone often to direct message somebody. But as we know, when you get out of your comfort zone, that's when, things start to happen so in terms of kind of the switching point for when you started to realize this was all happening or starting to go well can you remember a specific time when that started to change yeah for the band I mean I think that probably the biggest 
transition point really was when we were meeting people face to face, like like so many because we would meet hundreds of people a day and we, we were selling hundreds of CDs. And, and then of course, like after we met everyone online too, we would like, we, we were collecting email addresses as well. So we would go to McDonald's afterwards and we would sit there for an hour or two on our laptops and like, and typing in their email addresses on Facebook. Back then, if you typed in their, their email address, it would like pop up their Facebook profile. And so we would add them as friends and then, then you would continue from there. Um, so I think that that's really where the biggest kind of breakthrough happened was because it was really just about, it was about getting in tune with people. It was about connecting with them. It was about getting that feedback and validation too. Because when you meet that many people and you get, they listen to the music and they actually are like genuinely enjoying it, then it also kind of gives you this confidence boost, I think, or motivation to, to say like, wow, like, you know, this is actually, this is good enough. Like we can, we can actually do this. Um, so I think that that was probably, that, that was the biggest thing. And then of course, getting that first tour opportunity with all time low was like a dream come true. And that was one of the biggest moments for us where it became real. We're like, like, oh my gosh, like this is actually, this is happening um, as opposed to just a dream. Do you have any idea how All Time Low found out that you were tour hacking in their queues? Oh, oh yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. So one, and this is a great story because it's a good example of even the people that I think a lot of times the people that we think of as almost unreachable or the people that we think of as celebrities or it's like, oh, I could like this is surreal. Like, they're real people, they're humans, and you can get in touch with them. And this was a, definitely a good example of that was when we were tour hacking, you know, usually the shows, it was kind of a tricky situation where they, they had tour buses and they had drivers who would drive overnight between shows. We didn't have a tour bus or tour. We had like a Honda Civic that we were like sleeping in. So in between the shows, usually what would happen is we would we would meet people online before the shows. And then before the show started, we would get a head start driving to the next city. And so it was really rare that we actually got to stay and attend the show. But there's one day in Nashville, I remember that they had a double header because they had sold out the first show. So they were playing twice in Nashville. So we actually got to stay uh, for the show. And before this, basically every single day when you're meeting people online, we would always give one person at least one person a CD and say, Hey, so the guys usually come up, come out after the shows and they take pictures, they sign autographs. Would you mind doing us a big favor and giving them one of our CDs and letting them know what we're doing after the show? And you know, we did this for probably like two and a half weeks um, straight leading up to the Nashville date. And in Nashville, you know, we got to actually stay for the show. It was an incredible show. And afterwards they, they came out and I remember Alex Gaskar, third lead singer was you know standing behind this kind of fenced in area, taking pictures, autographs and, and whatnot. And we were walking up to him and giving him a CD and you know, like explaining what we were doing. And I remember he looked at it and, and he smiled and he's like, um, this is awesome. You know, thank you we have like 25 of these CDs in our bus right now and we've listened to it and you can hold on to this. You, know, you can sell the CD, but um, we listened to it and we enjoyed it. And we think what you're doing is great. Like that you're, you know, it's a lot of hustle. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, oh yeah, of course he has like 25 CDs in his, in his bus. Like we've been doing this like every single day. Like why did we just think that, that he's just like unreachable. But I think that that was probably the initial, how we made first contact or we kind of planted the seed of connecting with them. And then we reached out to their, their management. So they had a manager um, and we reached out about the touring opportunity. So it wasn't like they just, you know, kind of stumbled upon, they discovered like, oh yeah, like we like reached out to them and we, uh, we established contact, but there's absolutely no way that we would have gotten that opportunity to open for them if it hadn't been for us actually going out and essentially selling 
over 20,000 CDs to, to their fans. And one point too, that I think is uh, an important thing to, to think about or address, like in terms of doing this is we did this on probably seven or eight different bands' tours. And I think out of seven, like probably seven out of eight of them were really supportive of what we were doing and, um, and just awesome. And we talked a little bit about this on, on our interview, Harriet, about this sort of this scarcity mindset versus this like collaboration mindset in, in 99% of cases, if they're at that level or they're that successful, usually they get there because they have an abundance mindset and they're not like, you know, kind of weirdly like close off or, or scarcity minded. And so from my point of view, I think that if someone goes out to a show and they buy a CD for a band, you know, in line before the actual show, I think that you're really greasing the wheels and they're a lot more likely to go to a merch table and buy the CD for the band that they came for or buy merchandise or whatnot. So I, I think that I never really saw it as like, we're like, you know, taking or we're, we're like stealing money or something from, from the band, which I think is important because I think that that mindset could probably hold back a lot of people. And in fact, there actually were one or two other bands that we met while we were doing this who, you know, they were, they were going out and I think that they had a little bit more of that mindset where they felt like, what they're doing is a little bit more of like a scavenger type of thing. And it just didn't work out nearly as well for them because I think that they were approaching it with the wrong, the wrong mindset. So I think it's just a good lesson in general that when you focus on providing value and you focus on giving and I, think I see this a lot when it comes to sales in general, especially for musicians, because it's not like we're just, we're like, you know what, how can I make as much money as possible? Oh, I know what, I'm going to be a musician. You know, like, like that wasn't the, the thought process. I think as musicians, usually we, we were almost like the, we don't want to come across as salesy or like greedy or anything. Like we're, we want to be able to make an impact and be able to share our music. And so um, I think one thing that holds back a lot of artists, especially is this feeling of like, it's somehow wrong to sell something or it's greedy to make money. And um, I, I think it, things get so much easier when instead of focusing on, selling or trying to convince someone to get something that they don't really want you're focused on providing as much value as possible and really thinking even in your own mindset just figuring out how can you provide as much value as possible how can you frame it you'd be selling the exact same thing but if you feel like you're coming from a point where it's like you're trying to convince someone or manipulate them or trying to convince them to like to buy a cd then it's just it's not going to work you know mm -hmm. like it's just people are going to feel that but if you're coming from it from a point of you know, we've got this music. And if you enjoyed this, I think you're genuinely going to really enjoy this music. Um, so I want you to have it, then it's just a completely different energy shift. So interestingly, it's not actually that different from Spotify recommends. That's all it is. It's like aligning next to a piece of music that is like yours. Um, and I completely get what, get what you're saying about, you know, seeing other artists as other people trying to do the same thing as you. You know, they're essentially your friends that you haven't met because you're all part of the same boat trying to, you know, the, the quote, a rising tide lifts all ships. Like that's what artists want to happen in the music industry. But I asked that question with a very specific reason about what the sort of break was, what the breaking point was for you. And it was that tour with All Time Low. And I think the reason why I asked that is because I see a lot of, artists early in their careers will see a bigger artist or somebody getting lots of streams and they'll pinpoint a piece of luck <laughs> that this artist happened to get and I'm saying luck in um in speech marks because 
you know, you have to put get yourself in that position to for that luck to become your own. And yes, the stars aligned and all time low heard about your music. But you even said, of course, they heard about my music. We'd been handing out 25,000 CDs in their queues. So I'm just a bit, I'm interested in that idea of luck. And is that something that you even believe in as somebody that's gone through this process? Yeah, yeah, I, I love this question. And there's definitely some like rabbit hole material that I could cut down here because I was here describing that like it's making me think of determinism and like in will and in free will. And I mean, I, I think absolutely there's there's a a luck component to it in the sense. I mean, I've heard some there's some good quotes about you know luck is where preparedness meets opportunity or something like that. So I think certainly you know luck it wasn't just pure luck like we just it just fell into our laps like no we worked our butts off <laughs> like that's how we got into this position where we had these these breaks or these opportunities because because we prepared for it and we worked to make those those opportunities happen at the same time we were super fortunate i mean for more reasons than we could list i mean we were all white males you know who grew up in a society that you know even that in and of itself gives us certain advantages that we wouldn't have maybe growing up in different upbringings, but also, you know, it was hard. It was really hard work and we worked our butts off. And I don't think that anyone really, anyone that accomplished anything truly meaningful or successful, it doesn't just happen from luck. It happens from applying themselves and you know, having a big vision and focusing on the execution until it happens. Definitely. And I'm just, I keep having this image of like six guys sleeping in a Honda Civic. That's actually a, a car, right? That's not even a van. <laughs> so, so that was, there's two of us sleeping in the Honda Civic. I mean, maybe at some point there's like three or four, because we kind of split there's Sometimes we had four people in a group. There was a Durango that we had four people in for sure. I remember going to Canada and that one. Um, but the Honda Civic was this, there was a hybrid. There was our lead singer and I were split on, in that group. And gosh, I remember that, that, that thing. <laughs> I think it was like a used Honda Civic um, hybrid and it broke down and we were like stranded in this, uh, I forget which city it was, but it was like on the East Coast for a few days and his sister ended up bailing us out. We were so grateful for her, but um, we, we were we were crazy little kids. I've just pulled up a picture of a Honda Civic to make sure that it's not a van and it is definitely a little car. Yeah, I love it, that. It, it definitely is a little guy. Well, you certainly earned those, those streams for sure, but I'm also interested in this band's dynamic because you know a lot of the artists that will be listening to this will be like well I'm a solo artist so I'm not going to go off and do that on my own am I but I think also like having a band and staying together for 10 years has completely you know other um other parts that would make it a very difficult process what was it like to essentially do all of your growing up and and your early career with these five other guys. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're my best friends growing up. And I think there, there's one quote that I heard before, something about how we become like the sum of the five other people that we spend the most of our time with. And you know, I think that's certainly the case in terms of, yeah, I've taken uh, just through osmosis, like I think I'm probably like a, a big part of me is these equal contributions and different parts between all, all of us. And the idea of a band in general, I think is about individual components leading up to something that's bigger than the sum of its parts you know it's and it's also a family and so you know we have you know in every family there's there's arguments and there's things that come up and whatnot and you have to learn how to how to communicate with each other and so you know kind of overcome challenging situations together and so i think that one thing that really benefited us was that we went to the same 
uh, middle school together. Most of us, we went to high school together in Vermilion, South Dakota. It's like this very small town. And we grew up from a very, like from a young age, we grew up together and we learned a lot of these lessons together. Um, and we always had the same the same purpose and the same mission. <laughs> like none of us were, were really smart with money in terms of just like saving things off like individually. It's just like everything went back into the band, right? Like always, because that was just anything that all of us cared about was just was the band and about making as big of an impact as possible. And it wasn't until I found I was going to be a dad that I started caring about, you know, something more than just me and just like our, our band. And so um, I, I think that there was a lot of power that just came in from the united purpose between all of us and and that's something to, to figure out like for anyone who is in a band if you're going to be in a band and and you really need I, this is a challenge i hear a lot is people well you know one or two members they don't really care they're not as invested and there's people who are driving the band and if that's the case then yeah, i think that's okay like you, you don't necessarily have to be in a band where every single person is just like you know cares and it's all they're they're everything but that needs to be pretty I think it needs to be clarified early on so that you can determine, you know, who's responsible for different roles within the band and, and, and whatnot. So I think that we definitely lucked out in terms of, we just had a really special group of people like individually, they were amazing. Like Sam, our lead singer is one of the most intelligent humans that, that I know and Cole and Jordan are, I mean, everyone, everyone is an amazing musician, um, but really like the way that we all coalesced into one band, one single movement, I think was definitely something that was really special. Mm, it sounds like it. And I don't, I don't know if bands have that kind of success if the stars don't align in that way. Okay, so let's start to make the shift from Paradise Fears Michael sleeping in a Honda Civic to founder, CEO of this amazing company, Modern Musician. Um, you talked a little bit already. You mentioned at the beginning this, the word starving artist, and it's something we also talked about on the Modern Musician podcast yesterday when I was a guest. Can you, is there a specific point in your life when your mindset around money started to shift? Was it part of this tour hacking process or did that come later as you began to develop your your business? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that there's just different phases of, of my life and in my relationship with money. I mean, I, I actually probably fell more into a com like I think a pretty common musician relationship with money is that you know, money is almost... I don't know if like evil is the right word, but it's like, it's not important. It's sort of like, it's uh, this idea of selling out or something. I think for me, like the money was more of just a tool to just reinvest everything back into the band, to be able to record more music, to be able to tour with bigger artists and to be able to just like, you know, to grow this movement. And I think what I've learned in the last few years is that, you know, money is really an incredible tool and that there's nothing there's nothing wrong with building wealth, I think. So I think in the last few years, especially my relationship with money has turned into more of like a wealth um, relationship where I've started investing a lot of money and I've started thinking about my family and about, you know, being able to use this money in a more sustainable way. Um, back when we were touring full time, I mean, we made, we made a lot of money, but we, you know, invested all of it back into the band. And so I think that a lot of the business um, lessons that I've learned really through investing a lot of money into 
in some of my business mentors into like in different programs and, and figuring out how to run a successful business. Um, I think that the biggest lessons I've learned through that is how to be smarter with the way that we're leveraging money and making sure that you know, things like profit margin are a real, you know, like a, a, a really important part of having a sustainable business is figuring out like, you know, how much of this can we use for operating expenses? How much of this can we split? And like, where should we invest this? So I think that a lot of my mindset around money shifted when I found better money mentors who, because with the band, we didn't really have like money mentors. We, we had uh, music mentors and like, and people that helped us to grow our careers, but we didn't really have a mentor who was like a wealthy, you know, someone who had really built a strong relationship with money and was using it in a positive way to build wealth. In the last few years, you have a few of my money mentors are like Jeff Walker is one example who is one of the first business mentors that, that I found. And he's someone who his students have done over a billion dollars in sales and are doing, making a huge positive impact with, with their, with their businesses. And, and so definitely connecting with him and a few other um, business mentors have been a, a big part of that mindset shift and kind of marrying that with the, the lessons that we learned with, with Paradise Fears. I think that there's a big need for musicians in general to incorporate this wisdom, this knowledge with money, because that's for a lot of musicians, that's the gap. And we've historically sort of been taken advantage of, or we've been, there's this uh, starving artist kind of philosophy or idea that money is corrupt or bad or something. And I think musicians have an artists, a lot of us have suffered because of that. And now there's a growing movement of people who are realizing, oh yeah, like this is actually being an entrepreneur is a great opportunity. And this is a way to make a bigger impact. And to, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, to sell out or be inauthentic, but you can actually use it to amplify your message and to make a, a bigger positive impact. Amazing. So the company that you run, Modern Musician, uh, if I'm hearing correctly, you have taken the model that you did in Paradise Th Fears tour hacking, you know, building a fan base that way and translated it to the digital space, which you now teach to artists, correct? Yep, exactly. And it's it's interesting. And you know, when it first started out, it was really like, to be, to be honest, it was mostly out of desperation. I was going to be a dad. I was about $36,000 in debt. I needed to get my ducks in a row and figure out what I was going to do to provide for them. And so at the beginning, it was like, I was just trying to figure out what am I going to do? I was considering, you know, finding a dueling piano bar job at the same time. And I feel so grateful that that I did stumble upon some business mentors. And, and there's no way that we would have built the business to the point it is right now if I hadn't you know, discovered um, those mentors. But what I taught at the beginning it was really, I just kind of showed up and I did a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching and I just worked directly with artists and I taught them what I, I basically just showed up and answered questions and kind of guided them based on what I had learned with the band. There's one band with two guys in the band who I taught the tour hacking idea to, and they went out and they did it. And in a single month, they sold $11,000 in sales with two guys in the band. And so I was like, awesome, like this is, this is great. So, so I'm, so I'm going to create a tour hacking workshop and I'm going to teach this, like this idea and, and try to amplify this message. And what I found was that for the people who are willing to go out and do that, uh, it was awesome and they got great results and it was a really cool, really cool strategy. But for the majority of people who heard that story, they loved the story, but then they would say, well, you know what? Um, I've got 
a day job or I've got a family at home, the idea of going and just like, yeah, I'm a solo artist, the guy of just going and meeting strangers online for shows. Uh, is there any way to do this in a way that's more accessible, that can do this online? So that really began kind of this journey of trying to figure out what are the best ways to apply the strategy online and to do it? Is there a way to do it virtually? And that's where the idea of t- virtual tour hacking came from. And now probably about, I would say probably 80% of what we teach are lessons that I've learned in the past few years that didn't exist in the times of paradise fears, right? They're like, they're things, it's kind of like if we're surfers in, in the ocean, I think the mistake that a lot of people make is there's a wave that passed, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. And they saw a bunch of people being successful with this momentum. So it's like, you're trying to catch up to this wave, but it's a wave that's already passed. And you can spend a lot of energy trying to kind of trying to chase this trend that, you know, happened in the past. But if you kind of look at, if you're smart and kind of look at what's coming up and you're like, okay, what's about to trend right now? And how can I swim along with this to really gain momentum? Then I think that that's, that's really the way that you capture the, the most momentum. And so I think that there are fundamentals. There are things that don't change. It's kind of like a wave is always going to be a wave, no matter you know, like what, when it happens, like it's the same fundamental, it's water and it, and it has this energy. Um, so there are fundamentals that don't change things like, you know, building an audience. It, it relies on building relationships and connecting with people and, and providing value. But what does change is the different tools and technologies and the ways to do that. So the tools that I look at right now that I think are like the cresting waves are things like building funnels and running paid traffic and doing automations and having AI targeted uh, lookalike audiences that are based on your most supportive fans. And being able to target people based on the people that you know are resonating with your music the most uh, is really, really, really cool. And so I would say, you know, 80 to 90% of what we teach right now is based on what we've learned in the past few years through growing modern musician and implementing these digital marketing tools that didn't used to exist. And then the other 20% are just really like the core foundations and the things that are timeless. They don't really change. They're just, they're just principles for having a successful business and a successful music career. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, and makes complete sense with, I love how you've, you've taken what you've learned through your twenties, running a band, going out, pounding the street, sleeping in the Honda Civic and managed to convert that into a seven figure business. It's amazing. But I'm interested. I just want to hang for a minute on the digital tools because I know that a lot of artists right now see Facebook ads or YouTube ads as, you know, the be all and end all of what they have to do with their music video. And once they do that, it will fly. But if I'm hearing correctly, there's a very important step right at the beginning that is essentially the tour hacking part where you build that core fan base because you can't just amplify something that doesn't exist. And unless you have that core fan base, there's no one to, you know, replicate in your lookalike audiences or there's no one to base how you want to grow on. Do you have any kind of like parameter for how many you need in that core fan base? Are we looking at hundreds? Are we looking at thousands? How many people do you need to get started in this kind of model? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this on, on our last conversation about this idea of horizontal versus vertical. And I, I do think one of the mistakes that artists make, um, especially at the be- at the beginning, is worrying about the numbers too much or trying to get 
you know, a hundred thousand views or 10,000 followers or likes on their page. And in some cases, it's really not that hard to get, you know, a bunch of likes or followers on your page. You can like, there's services you go, you can buy them, but it's like, right now we're reading the, the Sneetches book by Dr. Seuss to, to our son. He, it's like his favorite book. He wants us to read that for nap time, for bedtime. It's some really great lessons in there. Essentially, the story is about, you know, there's these star belly sneeches and there's the non star belly sneeches. And there's the salesman that basically comes as like, Hey, like, because all the star belly sneeches think that they're better than the non star belly sneeches. So the guy, the salesman comes with like, Hey, like you want stars in your belly, you just pay me $5 and they get the stars. And then the ones that had stars are angry. And they're like, wait, like now we don't know who's best. And he's like, come in my star off machine. It's only $10. <laughs> and, you know, they go like back and forth until the moral of the story is at the end, like they realize, wow, like we don't know who's who anymore, like the stars. And I guess the stars don't really mean anything. They're sort of like, they're, they're meaningless. And I think that there's really a similar thing that's, that is happening where there, there are marketplaces where you can literally buy like fake followers or fake likes, and you can get these stars on your belly that ultimately don't really mean anything. And, and there's not like a true a connection to those people. But then again, I mean, I think that how you can measure impact is impact is like the number of people that you're impacting multiplied by the depth of the impact that you're making with those people. And I mean, one simple way to look at it is if you are looking at it in terms of revenue, it's like if you have a million people who pay you $1 each, then you'll make a million dollars. Or if you have a thousand people who pay you a thousand dollars each, then you make a million dollars, right? And, and so I think that that's one big shift for a lot of musicians, especially with the streaming model. It's like, you, if you really want to have a full-time career as an artist, just based on streaming, you do need to have millions and millions of streams and fall. And it's, that's a, it's a lot harder to get $5,001 sales than it is to get one $5,000 sale. And I think, especially when you're just getting started, it's a lot more effective of a model to go deep and narrow with a few people and really serve those people as much as humanly possible um, to kind of cut through the noise. Uh, because the people at the beginning who you tend to attract are going to be the people who really are craving that type of experience. They really want to go deep and they want to be a part of your the beginning of, of your story. And so I think that it makes a lot more sense to, um, to start with less people, but having that depth. I mean, interestingly, and this is something that has been mirrored both in Modern Musician, but also with Paradise Fears when we are starting, like that direct personal outreach, that personal connection, the one-on-one -on -one and going deep with those people. You know, for Paradise Fears, we did private parties where we'd go to people's houses and for up to $6,000 for a single show, we would, we would play for their friends and their family. And those were like some of the best experiences that, that we ever had. And the most valuable thing that we offered for sure, whenever we played those shows, we always built like a lifelong relationship with those fans. So I, I think that, for anyone listening to this who's just starting out, my recommendation would be to really to start um, thinking about a smaller group of people to start out with, but higher, uh, higher value offers, things that, you know, things that really go above and beyond just buying like a piece of merchandise from you, but are really experience-based are things that are transformational, things that are once in a lifetime. And so some examples of that. So Todd Herzog is a great example of an artist that, that joined our program and he had like 250 people in his community and he had sold four high ticket offers to new fans for the most expensive one he did, I think was a $3,000 offer where he did like a 
collaborative co-writing experience with a new fan because part of his story as an artist was that he had lost someone like a, a partner to cancer and he'd written a song about it and he told that story and one of his fans really resonated with that um they had just they had lost their father recently and and so they they asked if if he would consider writing a song, like helping to honor her father by writing the song together. And so they put together this collaborative songwriting package where he basically met with her personally and they wrote the song together. And it turned out to be this very like healing, healing kind of experience of, of being able to process that grief and being able to honor her father. And it was just like so priceless, so valuable. So I think that what we're discovering more for a while, I knew with Paradise Fears that some of the most lucrative um, parts of our of our music business really came from the higher end offers that we made from those private parties. I think that the assumption that I had made was that those people that were playing those shows for were usually people who had come out to our shows already, had seen us play. They're people we had already built a relationship with. And so I think my assumption was that in order for someone to get a higher ticket, um, offer like that, they would need to already have a built a relationship to be a, a quote unquote super fan. But what we're discovering now is that we literally have like a Todd Herzog, for example, a new fan who came in, who discovered him and him sharing his story and sharing those songs um, was enough to make a $3,000 sale. And we have um, people like we had an 18 year old named Avery who did a, a wedding gig for $2,500 to a new fan. And I have a new music project I'm working on right now that uh, the first gig that I've ever booked is a $5,000 wedding gig to a new fan who came in, who discovered the music. So I think that what we're discovering is that early on, again, it's a lot easier to make one $5,000 sale than it is to make $5,001 sales. And if you can make a $5,000 sale, then you can spend up to $5,000 in ads to reach one person at that level. And then everything else is just, you know, a cherry on top. So in a nutshell, that like going deeper with a smaller group of people and then expanding it from there is a better entry point than trying to get 10 million streams when you're just getting started. And when you say, um, so Todd, for example, when you say he had 250 people in his community, where where is this community? Is this Instagram? Is this Facebook? Is it a mailing list? Is, is it off platform? And this ties in really nicely with um, the difference between running YouTube ads or Facebook ads and getting a bunch of likes or views on your video or sort of like quote unquote vanity me metrics versus actually building a relationship, building a community. Um, I think one of the mistakes is you know, we call this building your rain catcher. If you have a big opportunity where let's say you get a song placed on TV or film or on radio, or you run ads or boost ads and you have like a bunch of exposure. And it's sort of like there's a storm that's happening and it's raining, you know, exposure. And what most artists are doing is they just kind of like hold out their hands, like, awesome, it's storming. And then eventually like the storm passes and they're just left holding what's in their hand. And most of the rain just kind of goes into the ground and it's wasted. So that's why what we recommend instead is, is building a quote unquote rain catcher, which is a, uh, another way of saying funnel to essentially catch the rain as it's falling and to build a deeper relationship with, with the fans who are coming in. So the funnel, you know, you could do it uh, through any of the different social media platforms that, that are available nowadays. But one of the mistakes is just doing it on the social media platform. It's kind of like, and this is, this is coming from our, uh, our masterclass training that we do, but it's kind of like you have this, this neighbor, we call him farmer, farmer Facebook. And he's like, hey, you ain't got one of those rain catchers. You can use all my rain catches. They're free. It's called Facebook and Instagram. 
and and most are like oh cool like i can just use this other in tiktoks like awesome um and so it's like they're capturing this rain and then all of a sudden facebook's like well you know what you want to use my rain kitchen you gotta pay me some money <laughs> and it's and so yeah i have friends who had hundreds of thousands of, of likes on their facebook page and then basically overnight when facebook changed the rules so it's you know mostly organic hardly it reaches any of those people it's like you have to pay in order to reach them um, they lost access to most of their audience and so my recommendation for everyone is like you need to have your own rain catcher and your own crm which stands for a customer relationship manager and so you use something like active campaign or mailchimp is a pretty common one for if you're just starting out but you collect the contact info so name email address phone numbers location so that if you play a show in chicago you can send out a text message to all of your fans who live in Chicago and say, we're playing in Chicago. Do you want to come hang out? And so you can still use those social media platforms. It's kind of like your core strategy for your social media should be to dump out the rain from, from those into your rain catcher, into your own community. And from there, I mean, I think the email and the phone number and your list, like the list is the thing. Like that's the, the most powerful thing is, is the list. And then you can always communicate with those people like that's an asset that you can you can take to different social media platforms. You can do whatever you know, like whatever is the place that you resonate with most. But um, right now, usually what we'll do is when people when people join there, we call it their street team. It's their private community. They join with their name, email, and phone number, and then they join a private group on Facebook. Is usually where we're hosting it. And in that private group, we recommend that they do uh, a private live stream. You know, once either once a week or once every two weeks where they just show up and and play some music and share some sneak peeks or teasers of new songs and i think for a lot of artists who are just newer and starting out it's a really nice it's a really nice platform to have kind of this like closed group this private community where they can let down their guard a little bit and they don't have to be perfect they can you know, share their demos and share things that they don't share with anyone else and they just be themselves and then from there, you, get, you have a testing ground where you can get this feedback from, from your fans. You can see what's really resonating most. And then if you are going to invest you know, a few thousand dollars to go record the songs, you make sure that it's the songs that are really resonating, that people are really enjoying the most. And you, it's nice to have that, that connection with that, that private group. Yeah, it's ultimately all about connection and belonging and how can you create what you would, the feeling that you would have at a live show in the digital space. And I think a lot of artists think that that isn't possible, but I think what you're talking about right now shows that it absolutely is possible if done the right way. I think it's it's almost impossible and, and maybe even, it's just a different kind of experience going from a live stream to like a live in-person show. There is something to be said about like being in a room with someone and giving them a hug and just like, and seeing someone and being in person, going out to eat with them. Like, obviously there, there's things, there is a certain amount of just being live, being present with someone. There's an energy to it. And I think the thing that best models that right now are live streams. Like, I think live streams are just like the, the most direct connected way that we have right now virtually to be able to have that similar kind of experience. And live streams, you can think of them in terms of like one to many, which is like a, a normal live stream where there's a bunch of people who are there. But then, I mean, other ways you can think about it is being on a Zoom call 
like us right now, like this is sort of like, this is a live stream. And this is probably even more of like an interconnected way to communicate than just being on like a live stream where you're just like a text on a screen, you know? So, so I think that for a lot of artists as well, this is an opportunity like Zoom calls and getting on Zoom meetings with new fans and essentially doing like a, a tour hacking type of thing, but doing it virtually on Zoom. And that's usually how the high ticket offers are made as well. So I think that, yeah, one of the best ways to get feedback and really connect and build that relationship is um, hopping on a Zoom call with a new fan one-to-one and just getting feedback and asking questions about the different things you're planning on offering, about your songs and building that relationship. Then I think probably the next best thing would be doing a one-to-many kind of live stream. So it's really when when there's a need for it, when the demand on your time becomes you can't keep up with the demand, that's when you have to get smart about scaling and get smart about leveraging your time. So that's when you might go from like one-to-one to more to like one-to-many where you might start doing group uh, live streams. So you might be doing things at, at a higher level. Um, but I do think that one-to-one portion at the very beginning is a really powerful um, step that shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, Michael, I feel like if we didn't live thousands of miles away, we could geek out for many hours over coffee or beer about this, but it's been absolutely wonderful. And I love what you're doing and love what you have done. And I suggest that Everybody goes on a little history tour of Michael and checks out Paradise Fears, but then absolutely head to Modern Musician, check out his business, check out there's a podcast featuring moi. But thank you. It's been really, really wonderful to talk and hear your story. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun to talk and I appreciate you giving me the space to ramble and geek out a little bit with you. Thank you for listening and joining us on the Girls to the Front podcast. If you want to come find us on instagram i'm at harriet jw and at girls ttf for the girls to the front page just a little reminder if you're interested in an artist development program just for female and non-binary artists you can head to artistacademyfoundation.com